All right, let me have you open up your Bibles. We are in 1 Corinthians chapter 10. 1 Corinthians chapter 10. And if you've been with us for a while, you know we're going verse by verse through the book of 1 Corinthians, which is in the New Testament, written by the Apostle Paul. April 18th, 1521 marks a very important day in church history. April 18th, 1521, so about 500 years ago, just about 500 years ago. And that is the day when Martin Luther, the the great reformer Martin Luther, stood trial before King Charles V, okay? And he was on trial before King Charles V for a very particular reason. Martin Luther was a Catholic monk during that time period. And uh, he had been going through the Bible, and as he was going through the Bible, you know, he, he was looking at what the Bible instructed the church should be like, what we should be busy with, what we should be doing, what should a Christian life look like, what's it all about? And then he was looking at the Catholic church at the time, and he was saying, man, there's such a dissonance between what Jesus has called us to and what the church is doing. And, and he started what today we call the Reformation. It's a major worldwide movement. You and I are a part of it by being in this room, the Protestant Reformation. We are in the footsteps of Martin Luther and this trial as he broke from the Catholic Church. He didn't even mean to break from the Catholic Church at the time. He was just trying to bring it back to what the Bible said. Well, he wrote a number of tracts, and King Charles V was not too happy because he was doing some damage to the kingdom. There was a lot of power at play here, and King Charles didn't want to lose it. So Charles brought Martin Luther before him, held a big trial. And they, 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 they told Martin Luther, they said, you need to recant or you'll be killed. Recant of your writings. Do you recant of what you've written? And Martin Luther, in Martin Luther fashion, gave a wonderful long speech filled with poetic, you know, sil- like, silog- like all these kind of different things that he did. And King Charles cut him off right towards the end and said, enough with the oratory. I need to know, yes or no, do you recant from what you've written? And then Martin Luther said some words that have gone down in history as some of the most important words ever spoken. He said this, Since your most serene majesty and your highness require of me a simple, clear, and direct answer, I will give one, and it is this. I cannot submit my faith either to the Pope or to the council because it is clear that they have fallen into error and even into inconsistency with themselves. Here we are. Here I stand I cannot do otherwise. God help me. Amen. Here I stand. I cannot do otherwise. God help me. Amen. We live in a day of religious pluralism. Pluralism. That one came out funny. Religious pluralism. And what the idea means is that in in this country, frankly, in a city like this, in in the day we're living in, there's all different kinds of ideas that people have. Religious ideas, secular ideas, atheistic ideas. And one of the great values of modern day American context that you and I all find ourselves living in, the pool we're swimming in just by being alive in this time and space, is this idea that we have, to, we have to somehow let all ideas coexist at the same time. They all get equal space at the table. Everything needs to, needs, to, needs to find a way to work together because all of them are true at the exact same time. Now, anyone who takes the time to really do their homework will look at all the ideas individually and very quickly come to the proper conclusion, which is they can't all be true at the same time because they all contradict each other. However, the, the time we're living in is one of religious plurality, which, which is trying to get us to say they must all be true. And as Christians, we need to figure out where are those moments where we need to be like Martin Luther? And we need to say, I get it. I, I want to respect people very well. I want to love people the way Jesus loved people. He was in their life. At the same time, I need to put a stake in the ground 
and say, here I stand. I cannot do otherwise, so help me God. Come what may. And, you, and then we take whatever comes our way as a result of it. See, this is a conversation of Christian, being a Christian and living in culture. How do we do this faithfully? How do we live in such a way that our faith and our life is so compelling and salty to everyone who looks in that even when they disagree with us, they go, we can't argue with your love. I mean, it's pretty, it's, it's, it's otherworldly. And we say it is otherworldly. But then at the same time, the, the world looks in on the Christian life and, and as they ask us to be a part of saying certain things, being certain things, behaving a certain way, where we say, I draw, I draw a line in the sand. I cannot go further. Where are those moments in our life? We're wrapping up a, a little mini-series within 1 Corinthians. So we're in chapter 10 of this New Testament book. Remember, it was a letter written by the man, the Apostle Paul, in the first century to a church in Corinth, the city of Corinth. You could go to Corinth today. It's an actual city. You could see the footsteps of Paul and where this all took place. And, and the, the whole book is about this clash of Christ and culture. How do we answer these hard questions of where our, our Christian faith rubs up against the secular culture around us? And chapters 8 through 10, we are wrapping up today, have been this little mini subsection where he's dealing with one question. And it was a very foreign question to us. because It has like no place in our life. The question for them was, in first century Corinth, can we buy meat at the butcher shop that had previously been used at a religious sacrificial service, right? Sounds so foreign to us. But here was the picture. In that day, there were religious ceremonies every day where people were taking meats, their lambs, their goats, their bulls, their ducks, their pigeons, and they were sacrificing them to false gods. It was idolatry. And then some of the meat was used in the sacrifice, some of it was eaten in a party, and then some of it was sold in the local butcher shop. And the question they were asking is, can I buy the meat at the butcher shop? If I know it was offered to an idol, and we looked at that and we said, look, that is not our life. We are not dealing with that question. But what we discovered is, even though we're not answer, asking that question, we're asking a ton of very similar questions every day. It's a question of, when I go through my daily life, something as simple as going to the butcher shop, when I do all my regular daily life practices, where do I have to draw a hard line? And we saw that the main, the main ethic driving the Christian is, as you're going through culture and you're asking these questions of all the different spaces your life goes into, one primary ethic drives you. First of all, it's a love of Jesus. But the secondary ethic is this. Does my decision to partake in this particular area build up other people and encourage them to know and love Jesus Christ? So, so that's the question we're asking all the time. We're going through life. We make a 10,000 decisions on a daily basis. Most of them we don't even realize we're making decisions, just life, we're, we're going through life. But as we engage, is the way I'm engaging it and what I'm participating in, how I'm speaking about these things, building everybody up in Jesus Christ. That's our ethic, that's what we're thinking. We, we've been so captivated by Christ that now we're thinking that way for other people. And now we get to the last section here and Paul moves us to the very last bit of his argument here. He's made a handful of arguments on how he's defending this statement and now he brings us to the last bit of the argument. It's fascinating. He goes so far in this passage to say, sometimes when you are interacting in cultural ideologies around you, you don't realize it, but you're actually participating with demons. Okay, we're gonna have to get into some, some deep stuff here. And so he says, because of that, because there's actually spiritual realities taking place underneath the secular ideas of your day, you need to determine in your heart, right here and right now, where you draw a line. Where do you take your stand? And that's the idea for today. Where as a Christian do we take our stand in total adoration of Christ alone? 
Let's read the whole passage, verses 14 through 22 of chapter 10. Therefore, my beloved, flee from idolatry. I speak as to sensible people. Judge for yourselves what I say. The cup of blessing that we bless, he's speaking about this communion meal that we're all gonna take. The cup of blessing that we bless. Is it not a participation in the blood of Christ? The bread that we break, is it not a participation in the body of Christ? Because there's one bread, we who are many are one body, for we all partake of the one bread. Consider the people of Israel. Are not those who eat the sacrifices participants in the altar? What do I imply then? That food offered to idols is anything? Or that an idol is anything? No, I imply that what pagans sacrifice, they offer to demons and not to God. And I do not want you to be participants with demons. You cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons. You cannot partake of the table of the Lord and the table of demons. Shall we provoke the Lord to jealousy? Are we stronger than he? All right. Now that can be a very confusing passage on a first read. So let's work through it verse by verse, see what we can get here. First, notice the first few verses, the first words. I love this. This is Pastor Paul. Therefore, my beloved, flee from idolatry. That should capture you. Right there in that language, my beloved. This is the language of a good pastor. He's, he's looking over a church he knows. He's looking over people that he, he, he loves them. He cares for them. He knows their stories. He's labored among them. Remember how much he loves them? He refused to take a salary from them. He got all his salary from outside churches because he didn't want to put a stumbling block before them. He just wanted to be in them. And he says, look, I love you. That's the heart of a pastor. And it's the heart of every Christian towards other Christians. I love you. You are my family. And then he says, flee, exclamation point, imperative, flee from idolatry. You know, one of the great um, lies of Satan that the modern church has believed is that Christians are supposed to just be super nice and keep the peace all the time. Now, now don't get me wrong, Christians should be really nice. They should be some of the nicest people you know, right? We love people radically. We, we adopt children. We, we're, we're sacrificial. We show up when other people don't show up. That should just be the nature of, of Christians all the time. Everyone should know that about us because we're following Jesus. But at the same time, it is not loving to further a lie in someone else's life. That's why he's telling them, flee from idolatry. He says, I love you. Therefore, I'm telling you, Stop. Don't go any further down that path. If you keep on that path, you are sowing seeds of destruction in your life. And the Christian is not someone that just goes through life and says, I don't wanna wanna break the peace. I I don't wanna step on anyone's toes. No, 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 no. When it's the right time, the Christian, because of love, because we know truth, because God is good and has a better plan for their life, we, we, don't, we, we want to step on their toes. Because if no one else is going to step on their toes, then they're going to run real fast down a, down a hellish pathway. My beloved, flee. And then he says, he starts using the, the, the Lord's Supper as an illustration. Now remember the point. The point is we want to be building other people up in, in Christ. And we're trying to challenge ourselves on, on where are these moments of cultural interaction, where do we draw a line in the sand? And he uses the Lord's Supper, the bread and the wine, of the Lord's Supper as an illustration. And he says in verse 21, he says, you cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons. You cannot partake of the table of the Lord and the table of demons. Now let's try to get some theology in place around this communion meal. Like I think a lot of folks grow up in the Midwest, maybe you've been in a Catholic church growing up. That's a very common story, folks coming into our church. And you've seen this thing a thousand times. You just know all about it. But, but you don't actually know what this is supposed to be about, what, this, what it symbolizes when we come together as a church family. In this, 
in this church, it's important that we get a concept here of what, what that's supposed to mean because it's right at the heart of this passage. Verse 21 is saying that when you take this, it's separating you and calling you out from the rest of the world. There's a, it's a new marker when you take this meal. And it uses this language of fellowship. Verse 16, let me read it to us. The cup of blessing that we bless, is it not a participation? That's the Greek term koinonia. It's going to be all through this passage, so try to remember that one. It's an it's a important word. Is it not a koinonia in the blood of Christ? The bread that we break, is it not a koinonia in the body of Christ? The word means a bond, a sacred bond, a union that's taken place. Let me show you some other passages where this word comes up in the Bible. 2 Corinthians 6.14 says, Do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers. That means don't marry a non-believer if you're a Christian. For what partnership, what koinonia, what fellowship has righteousness with lawlessness? Or what fellowship has light with darkness? A believer and a non-believer have two utterly different paths for their life that they're traveling on. Two, two different visions for what this ought to look like. And so how can those come in together with each other? How can you form koinonia? How can you form partnership if you have different visions for what life's all about? Philippians chapter 2, verse 1. So if there's any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation, koinonia in the spirit, any affection and sympathy, and he talks about the love we should have for one another. It says when, when you believe in Jesus, you have koinonia with the spirit. You, you are bonded with each other in a fellowship, but also you're bonded with God. It's like cement. God's taken you and him and he cemented you together. It can't be taken apart. 1 John chapter 1, verse 3, that which we have seen and heard, we proclaim also to you, so that you too may have fellowship with us, that's the word, and indeed our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. So, so now Paul is taking that word fellowship, which is used to talk about this bond, this union. One, one dictionary describes the word this way, it's an attitude of goodwill that manifests as an interest in a close relationship and shows proof of brotherly love. Proof of brotherly love. Paul says when you take this meal, you are, you're symbolizing Christ's brotherly love with you. You've been bonded with him through his death and resurrection. This is a symbolic meal that we take that reminds us this is what Jesus has done for us. He's brought us together with God and now nothing, even our own sin, can separate us from God. That's how powerful the love of God is through Jesus Christ's death and resurrection. He covers all of your sin in full, never to be taken apart. You are koinoniaed with him, Okay? And then it goes on and it says that it's also not only a symbol of our koinonia with God this way, vertically, but it's a symbol of our koinonia with each other, our fellowship as brothers and sisters in Christ. Verse 17, because there is one bread, we who are many, that's us, are one body, for we all partake of the one bread. It's this unity amidst diversity. What's he saying? Well, this is actually really important theology. And actually, it's going to push really uncomfortably against a lot of modern, popular, secular ideas. Okay? This is saying that all of us come from a ton of different backgrounds. Different ages, different ethnicities, different stories, different religious backgrounds. That's what the church is made of. We come from different countries in this place. We have a lot of nationalities represented in this room right now. The globe is represented here. And with all of those backgrounds, when we come into this place, we all have one primary thing in common. And that's Jesus Christ, his death and resurrection for forgiveness of sins. Everything else doesn't get erased the moment you come a, become a follower of Christ. Your ethnicity, your culture, that doesn't get erased. It's not unimportant. But when it comes into this place, it's not the most important anymore. 
Now you have a new story. That new story is Jesus took your place underneath the wrath of God and you can never be the same. And it doesn't matter where you came from, how old you are, what the color of your skin is. When you come in here, you're bonded together. That's why you can take an older, senior African-American man and a, and a young, white girl. <laughs> this is a no, weird illustration, okay? You can take these two people that should be as far apart from each other in the eyes of the world as you could possibly get it. And when they come into the church, they're brothers and sisters in Christ if both they're, if both they're faith in Jesus. The things that the world says these, you should be kept apart, now all of a sudden they're the same. Now, let me, let me interact with this a little bit. We've come through a season of talking about racial reconciliation, years as a church. And, and the world around us is still trying to figure this thing out. And as a church, the church has a long ways to go in this. There's lots of areas that we can keep speaking into this and reading and learning all of that. Yes, absolutely. But I can tell you this, the world does not have anything close to the solutions that the gospel offers when it comes to racial reconciliation. Because when you prioritize, what the world offers is this, the world tries to offer, prioritize the race as the primary identity marker. And once you prioritize race as the primary identity marker, then you've taken your eyes off of Christ, the only thing that can actually solve this for you. It's not that your race goes away. You bring that in. That's part of your story. It's part of every, that, that's part of who you are. It's your background. But when you come into this place, that no longer is your primary identity. And the church over the last few years has gotten this so wrong. We've tried to elevate and borrow from the world around us and elevate race as a primary identity marker where what the church offers us to do is to put this down and say, this meal says all of your backgrounds now become secondary to who you are in Jesus Christ and the brotherhood you have among each other. You see that? I know this is so hard to hear because we've done this wrong for so many years as a church. When you focus on the gospel, secondary identity markers become what they truly are, secondary identity markers. And Christ gets the glory. See, this is, this is the, the, the miracle of what Jesus has done. He, he not, only, not only makes us one with each other, but then forms a true koinonia with one another. You get koinonia with God, but then a, a concrete, you can't pull it apart with people who have radically different stories than you because the gospel connects you. The power of Jesus risen from the grave connects you. Now, where are we going with this? Look what he says in verses 18 to 20. Consider the people of Israel are not those who eat the sacrifices koinonia-ing in the altar? Are they not participants in the altar? What do I imply then? That food offered to idols is anything or that an idol is anything? No, I imply that with pagan sacrifice they offer to demons and not to God. I do not want you to be, here's the word, koinonia-ing with demons. This word is working its way through this entire passage. Now, let's go through it. He says, you can't, I, I don't want you to be a participant in the altar. He's talking about after the sacrifice was made, a lot of Christians at the time were saying, look, I'm not gonna go to the actual like sacrificial at the altar because we know that would be wrong, but maybe I'll go to the ceremony afterwards and just kind of show up. And he says, look, as soon as you go to the ceremony, you're participating in the altar. You're koinonia-ing with everything that took place at the altar. So you can't go. That's the law. You cannot go to that sacrifice. And then he says, I don't want you to be koinonia-ing with demons. Now, what, what does that mean? If, you, if you're stepping into the church, and maybe you haven't been around the church for a long time, maybe, maybe the pastor right now is talking about demons, and you're thinking, what have I gotten myself into? What kind of fairy tale world are we talking about here? Well, let me tell you about it. The Bible says that we live in a world that is far more than what you can see with your eyes. 
So the atheistic, materialistic worldview says all that exists is what you can see with your eyes, atoms and molecules, that's it. And the reason that fails, that atheistic, materialistic worldview fails is because then you cannot account for invisible truths, such as morality. What is morality? You can't touch it, you can't feel it. We all know it exists. It doesn't comport with the atheistic, materialistic worldview. Love doesn't comport with the atheistic, materialistic worldview because all that exists is what you can see. Well, the Bible cuts through all that and says actually there's a lot more going on. Morality exists, love exists, also angels and demons exist, and it's part of our everyday life. In fact, the scriptures say sometimes we host angels over to our house for dinner and we don't even realize it. <laughs> that, that's how much this is ingrained in the biblical worldview. And modern Christians try to distance themselves from this, but Paul wants to bring us right back into that space right now and get our mind thinking right, getting us visualizing this correctly. correctly. He says, you cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons. Meaning you can't come into church on a Sunday and take this meal, which is a symbol of your koinonia relationship with God. You're bonded. You are bond. You've created a bond. God's created a bond that cannot be taken. And then throughout the week, go about your life creating these bonds with demonic strongholds. Right? You, you can't do that. It's inconsistent. It's not true of a Christian. A Christian, as soon as they realize, ooh, I, I opened up a a relationship with a demon by my participation in that. They say, I don't want anything to do with that and I repent of it. And that's what Paul's saying. He's saying, you, you, you have been bonding yourself and opening up actual relationships with demons unaware that you were doing so. And that's forbidden. Now, that's my work on the text. Let me, let me try to move us to our time now out of 1 Corinthians culture out of Corinth to 21st century Chicago. These questions of, of faith and how it conflicts and, and, and bumps into culture around us come up every single day. And, and one of them I talked about a few weeks ago was yoga. I talked about that. We talked about uh, issues surrounding LGBTQ and the sexual uh, revolution that we've seen taking place. Now, those are some extreme ones that we talked about in a previous sermon, but every day there's a thousand different decisions we make that are examples where this could be true. The movies we watch, right? And let me give you a picture here. Going to the butcher shop in those days and buying meat offered to an idol was as common as turning Netflix on. That's what it would have been like. It was something like that. Something just as normal as turning the TV on. And, and so this is applying it now to first century the movies we watch, the TV shows we watch, the, the theater we see, the ideas we listen to and the books we read and the philosophies we digest and, and begin to say, the places we spend our time. You see, all of those questions that we participate in every day are the same thing. And, and what, if what Paul is saying is behind these decisions are spiritual realities that are bonding us, and they're creating this pathway of brotherhood with false gods, then, then Christian, we, we've, got to, we've got to do something about this. We've got to actually take inventory of our life, look around at the places we're interacting with and say, have we done something drastic that's impacting our faith, that's hurting others around us, and that we need to repent of? I think there's three reasons why this happens. 
We, we all fall into this, and, and part of this message today is to get us to think more creatively and deeply about how this happens and, and, and what areas in our life this might be happening in. But I think there's three reasons this happens. Number one, I think for a lot of folks, they're just ignorant, right? This, happened, this happens to all of us. This happens to me sometimes. We're ignorant of the spaces that we're in and the spiritual realities behind them, okay? So maybe, maybe you're a Christian. Um, I, I told you the story when I was a younger Christian, right? And I was, I was in a fraternity in college. I had just put my faith in, in, in Jesus, and I didn't have much conviction over a lot of the things that were taking place in that fraternity at that time. I was just living my life. I'm a young man. I'm at college. And then all of a sudden, I didn't know, but all of a sudden, I realized the spiritual reality behind the places I'm spending my time and the things I'm doing. And I'm starting to say, I, I can't continue to live that lifestyle. Have you, some of you experienced that before? Now, the challenge here is when we, when we push through that point of conviction, when the Spirit tells us that was wrong, and then we say, I know it's wrong, but I'm just going to keep going. And now at that point, what you've done is you've, 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 you've chosen a new bond over the bond you claim to have had. You've gone past ignorance, right? But now it's being revealed, and you're choosing to go further than it. So some of it, sometimes it's ignorance. Sometimes I think we genuinely enjoy the idolatry. I think sometimes we look around and we look at these spaces and, and you know there's a little bit of conviction in our hearts of what's going on and I think sometimes we just I enjoy the idolatry. Let me give a confession. Ready? I'm going to give you a confession. I think I was truly addicted to coffee. <laughs> I know this sounds light. This is real confession. My wife can vouch for this. Truly addicted in the sense that for years the Lord was asking me to stop drinking coffee and I would try and couldn't. I could go maybe four or five days at a time to the point that I was having health issues and I continued to do it. Why? I had conviction from the Lord. He was bringing physical pain on my body as a result of drinking coffee. But, but I just liked it. You see that? And sometimes I think, sometimes I think this is what happens. We, we just like it and we know full well that God, what God's saying. He's saying, Stop. Stop it. But we just say, I know, I know it's bad for me, but I like it. I click, I like it. And we're creating these relationships with spiritual powers. And, and, and Paul says, you, you can't take this and do that at the same time. Are you crazy? Number three, I think some of us are afraid of hurting other people's feelings. This gets back to a conversation we already had today. I think sometimes there's, there's spaces in our life that are truly just wrong and, and we can't participate as Christians, right? Not because God's the cosmic killjoy, but because God's laws are good and bring life. That's your story if you're a Christian. You learn God's laws and you learn that obedience to God is so life-giving. And all the places that you were out of obedience with God's law, you look back and you say, how did I find life in that place before? I can't even believe it. But then I think what happens is then you're a Christian and you look back on the previous life you used to live, and you don't really want to step away from it yet. And your, your reason is not that you like it. You, you don't even like this stuff anymore, but you don't want to hurt the friend's feelings. And so then what we do is we say, well, I guess it's better to just kind of be a part of this all and not hurt my friend's feelings than detach myself completely. And, and Paul's saying, you are, you, are, you are playing a real dangerous game there. You are, you're creating these fellowships with spiritual realities. There's a wonderful quote. There, there's books written on this. this is, there, there's a wonderful book called Christ and Culture written in the 50s by uh, Richard Niebuhr. 
And uh, it's a classic book. It's been, you know, commented on by a dozen other books at this point. So uh, one guy, John Stackhouse Jr., was describing how Christians and culture interact with each other. And he has this great quote. I'm going to read it. The very end is the most important part. But let me, let me read this to you. Longer quote. He says, Christians live within a strong tension. They believe that God has ordained worldly institutions. Worldly institutions are things like the government, the family institution, education, science. We believe that God has ordained worldly institutions and that they must work within those institutions as best they can. At the same time, however, they affirm that God's kingdom has penetrated the world here and now. Thus, under God's providence, they tread a path that can seem crooked and unclear, trying to honor what is divinely ordained in culture, such as family bonds, the rule of law, and deference to legitimate authority, while also living out the distinct values of the kingdom of God as best as they can without compromise. Furthermore, sin mars all of our efforts. Evil twists them, and God works in mysterious ways behind the scenes. Thus, Christians, this is important, are never free of suspicion, yet never lacking hope. So, so I think what John Stackhouse Jr. says here is, there is a healthy place as a Christian of being a little bit in the murkiness of this conversation. It's not as clean and clear as we wish it was. There's not a manuscript in the New Testament that applies to every decision you're going to make in 21st century. This is the show you can watch. You are allowed to watch this. You are not allowed to watch this. These are those places you can go. This is what time you should go to bed. There's no list like that in the Bible. Rather, it's, it's a collection of insight and wisdom and law at times that is to guide all people in all cultures at all times. And there's this level of suspicion we ought to have because we know the reality the Bible says. That there, are, there is true evil underneath some of the ideas and the places we could spend our time. But then there's, there's always hope that God is able to redeem those spaces in our culture. So how are we going to do this? Well, let me say two things. First of all, I had a whole section in this sermon where I originally listed out a bunch of places that I wanted to speak directly into. And I decided to cut that whole section because what I want you to do today is I, I want to I leave you with a sense of conviction that you go home and, and you work with your small group and really discuss your life. That, that's what I hope happens. That you hold your life with open hands to the people that love you in this room and you say, I don't know, is there anything here? I mean, look, here's my budget. Here's how I spend my money. Can we get that kind of authenticity at small groups? Or is that off limits? If it's off limits, that might be a scary thing. Here's my Netflix you know, account. Here, you, you can see the recently viewed. This is what I've been watching, right? Work this out in the, in the context of people that love you and know you. If we're gonna figure out how to do it though, where should we look? Well, how about we look to Jesus? I think Jesus is probably a pretty good starting point if we wanna know how to do this thing well. What did Jesus do? How did he live this really well? Well, let, let's look to Jesus. Let's, four ways Jesus exemplified how Christians can live this, this sermon out really well. Number one, Jesus hung out with a lot of sinners and non-believers all the time. So here's the challenge. You can hear me preach a sermon like this and all of a sudden think that your job as a Christian is to remove yourself from society and just hang out in your holy huddle. And that is to deeply mistake what the Bible is all about. Because first of all, the Christian is the first person to realize, I am the chief of sinners. It's not Christians in here and sinners out there. It's I'm the chief of sinners right here. I'm the one who's got it most screwed up in my life. I have messed this up, but by the grace of God, 
he has given me new life in Jesus, right? That's, that's the only thing that's different about my life is the grace of Jesus working out in my life. What did Jesus do? He hung out with sinners all the time. Matthew was a tax collector, one of the disciples. He wrote the gospel of Matthew, okay? First book of the New Testament. He was a tax collector. That was a chief henchman in those days. He used to rob people on highways of their money. He would extort their funds from them. He was considered a, a, a chief tax collector. He, he, was the, he was like the ultimate sinner that everyone hated. And he came to faith in Jesus. He repented of his ways. What's the first thing he does? He throws a party at his house. He throws a party. And he invites all the other tax collectors. Jesus was oftentimes called a glutton and a drunk. Did you know that in the New Testament? He was called a drunk. Why? Was he drunk? No, he wasn't drunk. That would be a sin. He didn't do that. But you know what he was doing? He was hanging out with a lot of people who were drinking. And the Pharisees all the, the whole time were like, uh, I don't know if you should be hanging out with them. And Jesus, meanwhile, is kicking back, like in the house, getting to know their stories, hearing their lives, changing their lives. Hmm. So Jesus dined with sinners. This means that as Christians, we must be deeply ingrained in the messy lives of the people that God places us around. Because life's messy, isn't it? I mean, as a Christian, my life's messy. And if you don't have Jesus, and if your neighbors and friends and family don't have Jesus, then their life's messy without the hope of the gospel, which is the only solution for the brokenness. I mean, we all know that, right? Like, so don't you want to be in their life and love them? Number two, Christ never affirmed sin. He never affirmed sin. So he is in there, but he's not, he's not joking around with Matthew and the other tax collectors. <laughs> you saw that time I got the money from that guy. You see him? I got the money. Oh, wasn't that funny? And Jesus is back there going, that's funny. That's a good one, Matthew. That's good. No, he never affirmed the sin. That, that wasn't what Jesus did. Now, this should hit us close to home because, you know, I'm, I'm thinking back in my life. There's plenty of times where I found myself in spaces where people are joking or making light of sin and sinful behavior in such a way that my participation in that conversation is affirming that I find the humor funny or that I find what they were doing normal. Jesus never affirmed sin, right? What does he say to the woman at the well? He, he goes to the woman at the well, which was a, a radically countercultural thing to do, to be alone with a woman, a Samaritan woman, and he speaks to her. And then what does he say? He says, yeah, you're living with a man who's, who you're not married to. That's sin. You can't live with a man you're not married to. And Jesus says, I'm not affirming your life. But he's there with her. Number three, Christ never enjoyed sin. So he didn't affirm it, and he also never enjoyed it, right? He, he didn't, he did, like I said, he, he didn't kick back and get drunk with the guys, even though he was in the space. He, 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 he separated himself from sin. The scriptures say he who knew no sin. He loved God, he worshiped the Father, and, and he perfectly obeyed all of his commands. And when you look to Jesus, what you find is the perfect human, the one who did it perfectly and lived the life that is truly life. He had joy right, right? We can spend all of our time trying to find happiness and contentment in everything that the world has to offer you. But when you look to Jesus, he's the guy who had it right. And so if we actually want to get after what we were made for, true contentment and joy in life and in the life to come, look to Jesus. He got it right. And he never enjoyed sin. Lastly, Jesus shared the message of the kingdom with everyone he met everywhere, all the time. What does he say to the woman at the well? He says, yeah, you, you've been married and divorced seven times. Now you're living with a guy you're not married to. He says, I'm gonna give you the water of life. She says, what are you talking about? We're at a well. Are you, are you greater than our father Abraham, right? Are you greater than him? He goes, 
Come to me and I will give you water that will never dry up. And he's offering her hope. He's saying, I'm gonna feed your soul. I can give you something better than water. I can give you eternal water. You gotta believe in me, woman at the well. And she runs home. She tells her whole town everything that Jesus, that Jesus knew everything about her. Somehow he knew everything and he was offering me life to the full. Jesus is in messy people's life and he's offering life in the hope of the gospel everywhere he goes. Never affirming sin, but deeply ingrained in people's lives. Oh, we get this wrong, church. We get it so wrong. And this is why the outside world, I think non-Christians look at the church and oftentimes what they see of the church is they think of us in terms of this like super weird holy huddle that they just could never be a part of. We have a hidden internal language. We use words that just don't make any sense to the outside world, Right? And, 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 but meanwhile, then you, then you read Jesus. It's like Martin Luther, right? Martin Luther read the Bible for the first time and was like, I think we got it wrong. Church, I think we got it wrong. I think Jesus actually calls us to be so deeply embedded and ingrained in people's lives because we desperately love them. Because we're, we're acting like Jesus, aren't we? I mean, isn't this what Christ has done for us? Isn't this as simple as it gets? Be like Jesus in some way. What has Christ done for us? Christ came on a, on a rescue mission for his church out of pure love. He loved us. He was one with the Father, the second person of the Trinity. He, Jesus, before he incarnated himself into the human form, was God before the foundations of the earth. He spoke the existence into being. He knows every hair on your head. And then he came in the form of a, a human, suffered, on the cross, experiencing all of life from womb to tomb. He went into the womb of Mary all the way through life, through friendship, through family relationships, through hardships, through suffering, through joyful moments. He experienced all of life. And then he went to the cross. Why did he go to the cross? Because we were broken and, and we couldn't figure life out because we had separated ourselves from God because of our sin. And so Jesus now steps into our place and he, and he says this, he says, if you believe that Jesus took your place underneath the wrath of God, all of your sin will be forgiven and you'll be given a whole new life, a new anchor for life. And all the places that you thought were gonna give you life before, all of a sudden when you put your faith in Jesus, you suddenly realize they were nothing. It's like filthy rags. And you look at Jesus and you say, he's worth it. He's worth all of it. He's the king and he has the secret to true life, forgiveness of sin in this life and in the one to come. So, so what this invites us to do is to look out at life around us and to be like Christ. How, how does Christ in culture, how do Christians in culture interact? You be like Jesus. Isn't that pretty simple? Isn't that amazing? We, we, we make it so complicated. How are we gonna go through life in the city of Chicago? Well, we can point our fingers at everything the world's doing wrong all day long. And I love doing that with the best of them. I have a whole podcast where I do that weekly. I point my finger outwards at the ways the world is getting this wrong, okay? But if that's all we do, that is nothing like what the, the fullness of Jesus' ministry. We're called to love people sacrificially. We're called to give up that others might have. I've been so convicted recently. I've been reading a lot of old authors and, and the way they handled money has me just flabbergasted. They truly believed that every penny they had was the Lord's. They were giving so sacrificially, those who had much and those who had little. Those who had much were living as if they had little because they were giving so much of it away all the time. They were choosing to live so small, in such a small way, even though they didn't have to. And it was just commonplace. It wasn't 
forced on them because of some law. It was just the joy of Jesus. It so overwhelmed them. And it's, it's bringing me a personal sense of conviction. Like, how do I do this well? And I, I, feel like I'm, I feel like some other generations got this right. I don't know if I'm getting it right. The passage ends, shall we provoke the Lord to jealousy? You shall not bow down or serve them. For I, the Lord, your God, no, verse 22, shall we provoke the Lord to jealousy? Are we stronger than he? That's the end of this passage. Provoke the Lord to jealousy. What does that mean? God is not a jealous God the way we think of jealousy, rooted in insecurity, fear of what others are going to think of us. That's the wrong kind of jealousy. No, God's a jealous God because he knows what's right for human beings is that they know Jesus. And he's, he's jealous for his glory. Because, because when we know God and we, we, we anchor our life on who God is, everything else falls in place. But when we don't know him, our life is a mess and it cannot find anchor. And he's jealous for his glory because when his glory is had, things get in order. And so when we start to bond ourselves with these wrong places by, by going into culture around us and making these relationships the wrong way, he's jealous for his glory because he wants to get us back on track because he loves his glory because it's what's right. Church, I think as I close this, I want to make a suggestion. And that suggestion is, is that I'm willing to bet that if you will go into your small groups this week and you get really honest with each other and you're willing to kind of get vulnerable with the spaces that you are kind of living your life in and how you're thinking and what ideologies you're bringing in and you're willing to be wrong. If if you're honestly willing to say, I could have this wrong. I, I could, I very well could have this wrong. And you go into a group of followers of Jesus that know and love you, and you say, will you help me? I think the Holy Spirit will move in that place very powerfully. And we'll discover very clear places where we need to draw a line in the sand and say, here I stand. I cannot do otherwise. So help me, God. Amen? Pray with me. Father, we love you. And uh, we want to honor your word. We want to live in accordance with your word. And we don't want to get this wrong. The, the time is too short to get this wrong, Lord, or to be playing games with church. God, I pray for everybody in this room, wherever they are. God, I pray that, Jesus, that you would be making yourself very plain to us in our hearts right now. God, if we're getting something wrong, reveal it to us right here and right now because we don't want to waste time. Life is too short. But God, I pray that your spirit would move right now as we move towards this communion meal, move in such a way that you bring about a conviction that, that no preacher can muster. Your spirit alone can do that work. I pray in Jesus' name, amen.